0: Romans chapter 8 this morning, coming to the end of this wonderful chapter in the book of Romans, really in all the Bible, and and it's really closing the, out the section that started back in chapter 6, talking about the sanctification of the believer. Actually, you could point to the end of chapter 8 as the end of the larger portion that started all the way back in chapter 1, verse 18, with the entire presentation of the gospel message that Paul started way back then. We'll get into chapters 9 through 11 in the coming weeks, and Paul will shift his focus to talk about the role of the nation of Israel in the plan of salvation, and it will be related to what's going on in this first half of the letter, but it will also be a shift from this self-contained gospel presentation that he's presented in these eight chapters. In the section that we've been in starting, that started back in chapter 6, the focus has been on the sanctification of the believer, a person who has believed the gospel and has been justified by faith. Right? We refer to it as, or I refer to it as, the what now portion of a person's life. Now that a person has believed, now that they have placed their faith and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ, what now? How are we to live? How are we to conduct ourselves? How are we to consider ourselves as we continue to live in this world but are no longer enemies of God but are now His children and we're awaiting the hope of glory? What now? And we've seen that question answered all the way through these three chapters with the instruction to consider ourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to righteousness, dead to the law, but alive to God, living in obedience to him. Chapter eight has shown us how this is possible with the ministry of the Holy Spirit who enables us to live lives that are obedient to God enables us to be able to put sin aside, enables us to obey His Word, no longer live according to the flesh, but now we live according to the Spirit. We are enabled as believers because the Holy Spirit has come upon us. He has indwelt us and made His abode within us and ministers to us daily, allowing to live a sanctified, a set-apart, a holy life for God. With the power of the Holy Spirit, we can endure trials. The sufferings that will come about in our lives. Paul went over this starting in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 8, talking about how suffering will come. Suffering is a part of the Christian life. But in light of the glory that is guaranteed to us that will come someday, the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared to the glory that will come. We fix our hope on that, and we have the Holy Spirit who helps us even in that. He intercedes for us even in those times when we need to cry out to God for help in our lives, even when we don't know what it is that we need, how we should cry out to God, He makes intercession for us and helps us through those trials and through those times. In the last section that we looked at, verses 28 through 30... We looked at the unbreakable chain of salvation. How this is all possible for us, as we saw that God causes all things to work together for good on our behalf, in the lives of those who love him, in the lives of those whom he has called to salvation. Those who are called, God will use everything that comes into their life for their good to mature them, to sanctify them, and he showed us why that is by revealing this unbreakable chain of salvation. God foreknew us. He had special knowledge in favor of us. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. He called us to salvation. He justified us when we answered that call and believed in the gospel message. And the future hope of glory is ours. It says He glorified us. There is absolutely nothing that can stop that from coming about. There is nothing that can stop that from occurring within us, and we will someday be glorified with Jesus Christ. It's that truth that Paul is going to elaborate on here as he finishes up this chapter, as he finishes up this section. The last verses of chapter 8 are dedicated to showing the security of, that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. As those who have been justified, Paul has made it clear that we will one day be glorified, spending all eternity with our Lord. But now, in verses 31 through 39, Paul will show us not only what God has already done for us, but the certainty of what that means for our future security with Him. He starts off with a concluding statement to what he's been saying so far in verse 31 he says what then shall we say to these things and so here he's referring back to what he said previously these things you have to ask yourself what are these things well he's talking about really a conclusion not just of the chapter or of the preceding verses but really you could say that he's pointing to the first eight chapters everything that he's presented so far and covered so far From our justification to our sanctification to our glorification, the final result is what we see here in these verses. In light of all that God has done for us, the depths that he took us from and the heights that he raised us to, what then shall we say? What is left to be said? You get the idea that Paul is legitimately asking this question here, almost as if he's speechless. What else can we say to this? But, of course, it's Paul, so we know that he's not speechless. So he's going to continue on for nine more verses here. In these final verses of the chapter, verses 31 through 39, there are two main divisions. And in verses 31 through 34, we're going to see that there is no charge that can be brought against the children of God. There is no legal argument that could ever be made to separate us from God ever again. And then in verses 35 through 39, there is nothing, no thing that can ever separate us from the love of God that he has demonstrated for us, that he has poured out within us. And when you put these two things together, it becomes obvious that the security of the believer is something that can never be taken away from us. And so he continues in verse 31 with this idea of a charge that could be brought against us. He says, for if if God is for us... Who is against us? And Paul uses the word if here, right? And we've talked about this word before, but there's, there's really no question as to the validity of this statement. He's using it as a part of, uh, participle of fulfillment. It assumes a fulfilled condition. And we've talked about this before. We've seen it before in the book of Romans, seen it several times, um, different verses, and we use this same convention when we speak today. Today. Right? I might say something like if I might look at the gas gauge in my car and say, if I just filled up my tank, why does my needle still point to empty? Well, in that case, I'm not really questioning whether or not I, I filled up my tank. I'm making the point that since I filled up my tank, why does my needle still point to empty? The needle should indicate that it's full. And that's really how Paul is using the word here. There's no question that God is for us. It's really since God is for us. And since that's true... Who is there that could possibly be against us? Now, of course, there are adversaries or enemies that we have as believers. The whole world, we could say, is against us. But that's not the point. The point, what adversary can there be that could hurt me? What adversary is there that could ever possibly matter if the Almighty God is on my side and I'm on His side? Well, what did we just see in the previous verses, 28 through 30? God is working all things together for me as one who has been called, who loves God as a believer. I have been foreknown by God, predestined, called, justified, will be glorified. Does that sound like God is on my side? That sounds like it to me. Of course He is. We're talking exclusively here about people who belong to God, who are the children of God. So if God has done all of that, then who could possibly be against me that matters? The psalmist said in Psalm 118 verses 5 and 6, From my distress I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Is there anyone else that I should fear if the Lord is with me? That's the point here. There is no one great enough to overcome the power of God to affect me. There is no one that I should fear that could undo what God has done in my life. This list would include several things. I have four things here. First of all, other people, right? There's no other person that could change or affect this, right? People that are around us. No no one could change this fact. And the second thing is not just other people, but even myself. We'll see this further as we go, but why would I not be included in that as well? If God has done all this for me, He has sovereignly determined that I will be conformed to the image of His Son, can I remove myself from that? No. I can't. That's not even possible for me to remove myself from the love of God. A true believer would never want to leave the love of God, but even if he somehow wanted to do that, how could he possibly put aside what God has done in his life? Third thing, Satan. Right? We look at the demonic realm. We look at Satan. We think of Satan as the great adversary, and he is he is an adversary, right? He is referenced as an adversary, but the truth is. Satan has no power over the life of the believer and has no authority that can overcome the authority of God in my life. And the fourth category, the fourth person that I would put into this is even God himself. Even God himself cannot and will not change this in my life. Now, how can I say that? Because it's a matter of the faithfulness of God that we're talking about here. God has given me His Holy Spirit as a promise, as a pledge, a guarantee of the future glory that He has promised to me. He has justified me. He declared me to be righteous before Him. What would it mean if God suddenly took that away from me? Took back His promise, condemned me once again, after declaring that there is no condemnation for me. It would mean that God was unfaithful to his promise, or that he was in error in declaring me to be righteous in the first place, neither of which could possibly be true. No, not even God can change my eternal relationship with himself, sever that relationship again, which he has previously reconciled me to himself. What he has determined to be true is true. So the picture here is that there isn't anyone who can stand in opposition to the one who is on God's side. We sometimes get absorbed in the problems, in the adversaries. We get concerned about those who would oppose us. And temporarily, they can make life very difficult for us, right? I'm not saying that people can't cause us problems. I'm not saying that governments can't cause us problems. But really, they don't concern us. They don't really stand in our way. There is no one who can stand between us and what God has in store for us in glory. And he goes on in verse 32, and he develops the idea that God is for us. How can we be sure of that? Look at verse 32. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Here's the proof. Here's what... has done for us. He did not spare his own son. The phrase, his own son, marks Jesus off as distinct from believers who are also called sons of God, right? We have all become sons of God, children of God. But his own son makes him unique. And we saw earlier in the chapter that we are now the sons of God as well. But Jesus is the unique son, the only begotten son. He didn't spare his own unique son, but delivered him over for us all. What did he do? He gave his own son to death for us, crucified on a cross. We saw the same phrase back when we were in chapter 4, the end of the chapter, when talking about the process of justification through faith, Paul said of Jesus in verse 25, "'He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification.'" That's our same word, and we understand what that means. He sent his own son to be crucified for our sins. He gave him up to pay that penalty that our transgressions incurred. In order for mankind, for anyone in mankind to be redeemed, to be reconciled to God from their sinful lost condition, it was God that had to act. It was God that had to do something to fix that relationship. He had to provide a way for man to be saved, and that's what the death of Christ provided. The means to be saved, if only we would believe in what he did. That was the greatest thing that he could do for us, something that he didn't have to do, but that he did anyway. Now the point is, if he delivered up even his own son, the greatest possible thing that he could have done He sacrificed the greatest thing that he had, sent him to the cross for our sins. If he gave up so much to redeem us, to make reconciliation possible, what wouldn't he be able or he be willing to give up for us? What wouldn't he be willing to give us if he gave up all of that? If there was something that you wanted so badly that you were willing to pay a fortune for it, wouldn't you give up lesser things as well? Someone goes out and buys a really nice car, saves up for it, spares no expense to get it. What would we then expect them to do after that point? Would we expect to let them, for them to, oh, I bought it, now I'm going to let it sit in the car in the garage, and I'm just going to let it decay, or I'm going to park it out in the middle of a field, let the rain hit it? No, that's not what we would expect. Now, there may be some people that do that, so well, we're not talking about them. Most reasonable people would look at that and say, you know what, I'm going to do the little things to take care of this thing that I spent so much to procure. Right? They'd care for it. They'd take it in for maintenance. They'd get it washed and waxed. They'd change the oil, things like that. That just makes sense. If you're willing to spend the greater amount for something, spend anything to obtain it, then wouldn't you also be willing to do the lesser things to take care of it. And that's a picture of what Paul is presenting here. God gives graciously, freely. He withholds nothing from us. Doesn't mean that he gives us whatever it is that we want. Some people go to that extreme, right? Well, if I want something, name it and claim it. That's not what we're talking about here. But he gives us all that we need. He freely, graciously gives us all things for our good. Paul has been talking about how God works in us today to prepare us for glory, how he provides for us, how he is using everything in our lives to accomplish his purpose of conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. It is these things, this enablement that's in view here as well. Turn with me over to Second Peter, uh, Peter's second letter, the first chapter of Second Peter. At the very beginning of this letter, we see Peter's greeting to the believers here that he's writing to. and He says, starting in verse 2 of 2 Peter 1, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Here we see Peter say that he gives us everything pertaining to life and godliness. We have everything in Christ. What he he gives us is sufficient for our every need. All that we need to live a life for Jesus Christ, we have. All that we need to persevere under trials, we've been given. There isn't anything more that we can have, isn't anything more that we need. We have been given all that pertains to to living a life of godliness. Another passage, look over in Ephesians chapter 1. Again, the beginning verses of the letter. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is telling the churches in Asia Minor of all that God has done for us. Starts off very familiar with what we talked about in our last lesson. In fact, we've gone to this section a couple times in our study. If you look at Ephesians 1, start in verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. This is what we've, we saw in chapter 8, right? Of Romans. Foreknown, predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Chose us in Him that we would be holy and blameless. Before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And you see, there we have him choosing us, predestining us to be holy and blameless before him. That is God's will, that's his purpose for us. But then he continues in verse 6, talking about his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Here, once again, we have redemption through his blood, the delivering up of the Son to provide forgiveness of our sins, according to his grace. And it says here, the riches of his grace have been lavished upon us. And I love that word here, lavished. It's a pouring out of His grace. It's giving us more than we could ever possibly need. It's not just giving us, oh, well, this is is what you need, this is what you get. This is pouring it out. There's nothing that He would not give us. That's what we're talking about. This is what God has done for us. This is the way in which He is for us, providing us with redemption and reconciliation giving us everything pertaining to life and godliness, lavishing us with the riches of his grace. It's not just what he did for us on the cross. That was the start, but his grace continues on from there to encompass every part of our lives. So back in Romans chapter 8, in light of that, in light of all that God has done and is doing for us, what is there? that anyone could ever do to change what God wants for us. And that's where Paul goes next. Look at verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justified. Who is the one who condemns? God's elect, those whom he has sovereignly chosen. Right? We talked about this when we were in verses 29 and 30. Those foreknown are specially known and loved, and they're chosen by God. And we'll talk more about election when we get into chapter 9 as well. But as believers in Jesus Christ, God has chosen us, elected us. It's the same, same idea, same word. If he has chosen us for himself, who was there who could bring a charge against us? And that word charge, that's a technical legal expression. Who can bring a legal charge against God's people in God's court is the picture that we have here. God has justified those who are elect. And remember, justified is a legal term as well. It means to declare someone to be righteous. When a person believes at that moment of faith, God declares them to be righteous, they are justified. So the question here. Who can overrule God and declare them to be unrighteous? That's really what's at stake here. Who can condemn the one whom God has said is justified? It's an absurd rhetorical question. Nobody can do that. It can't be done. Now, we look at our human courts and we say, well, that happens all the time here, right? We have an imperfect legal system where the innocent sometimes get convicted wrongly and sometimes the guilty go free. We see that from time to time, but not in God's court. This doesn't happen where God is the perfect judge. If God has declared something to be true, who is there that can can declare it otherwise? It could only be from someone greater than God, and there is no one greater than God. So no one can ever overrule God's verdict. Those who have been justified cannot be condemned, cannot become unjustified. Remember Paul started off the chapter with the same level of certainty. Verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None whatsoever. Those that belong to God cannot be condemned. There is no condemnation for them any longer in any way. Continue on with the second part of verse 34. He says, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. To show that the issue is settled and how it was worked out that we have come to be declared righteous by God, Paul states four facts about Jesus Christ and his work in bringing this about in our lives. These facts are important because God cannot just declare the wicked Righteous, their wickedness must be dealt with, and it's dealt with by Christ. So he starts off by saying, Christ Jesus is he who died. And this has been brought out many times, right? We've talked about this before. The same thing that we talked about earlier. He is the Son of God who was delivered over for us. Turn back with me to chapter 5. We've seen this there before. We talked about the end of chapter 4 earlier, where he was delivered over for our transgressions. But look down at verse 6 of chapter 5. For it says, While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The way that God has planned out salvation is that Jesus Christ had to die. Christ came to make the sacrifice that would pay the penalty for sins. That is essential to our salvation. That penalty had to be paid by someone. It's either paid by us for all eternity, or it's taken care of by the death of Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 9 there of chapter 5, "...much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him." For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. This is the same thing that he's talking about in chapter 8. Dying for us, paying that penalty. We were justified. We were reconciled. We, were, we are saved by his life. This is all what God has done for us. And to think that God would just let us go after that. He did all this for us. He gave us guarantees, gave us promises, poured out His Holy Spirit to us, and then to think, oh, I'm just going to let that one go. That's not what we're seeing here. He saved us, reconciled us, justified us to keep us and to make us His very own. That is all made possible through Christ's death on the cross. But back in verse 34 of chapter 8, the second thing Not only did he die, but he was raised from the dead. That's an essential part of the work of Christ. Resurrection is the evidence, the proof of our salvation, the proof that our salvation is complete. Romans 6 told us that resurrection is essential. He said in verse 4 of chapter 6, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Because of his resurrection, we have the hope for living a sanctified life and ultimately a glorified one, the glorified life that we've been talking about through this chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we won't turn there, but 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul tells us that if Christ hadn't risen from the dead, then our faith is worthless. and We are still in our own sins and we are no more than fools having believed in something that didn't exist. Without the resurrection of Christ, we would have no hope. So he died and was raised. And now the third thing, Christ is at the right hand of God. There is a repeated emphasis on this in Scripture. Some ten times that it states that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Why is that important? What does that mean? It's a statement about him that shows that he has the position of highest honor in heaven. He has the greatest glory. This is similar to what we saw in our last lesson of Him being the firstborn. It's the exalted position. It's the position that Jesus alone occupies, having been raised and ascended up to heaven, awaiting the proper time when He will return to establish His kingdom on earth. Psalm 110, verse 1. Very familiar Old Testament verse because it's quoted many times throughout the New Testament. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In Acts chapter 2, verse 33, during Peter's sermon at Pentecost, he says that Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God. In chapter 5, verse 31, Peter again is talking to the council in Jerusalem And he says in verse 31, he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. In Acts chapter 7, when when Stephen is giving his speech before his own death, Stephen sees heaven open and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Christ is the key person in God's plan of salvation, which shouldn't be any surprise to us. In not only his work on the cross, but also in the work that he does now at the right hand of God the Father. And part of that work is what we see next here in verse 34. In his position at the right hand of God, he intercedes for us. The one who has the highest and most exalted position intercedes on our behalf. Earlier in chapter 8, verse 26, we saw that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in our prayers. And now we see that Jesus Christ intercedes for us as well. We have the highest possible representation in the highest possible court that there is. Let's look at a couple of passages on this. Turn over with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews also has several references to Christ being at the right hand of God. We won't take, a, take the time to look at those, but here in Hebrews chapter 7, down in verse 25, it says, Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He lives to make intercession. This is part of his ministry at God's right hand. His high priestly ministry, and he does this on behalf, on our behalf, before God the Father. Those who draw near to him, those who have come to him in faith, are those that he makes intercession for. Another place that we see this, turn over to 1 John, the second chapter of 1 John. First John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Here John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. He says here, we have an advocate with the Father. His presence before God is an ongoing statement that... Every sin that I have ever committed is taken care of. He has paid for it in full. As a believer, can I commit a sin that will separate me from God? No. If that were the case, then there would be something wrong with the plan of God. That would mean that his plan of salvation, the sacrifice that he made by sending his son, didn't cover that. It didn't work. John is telling us that when we do sin, even, even though we shouldn't, you can't, don't neglect the first part of verse 1 there, but when we do, we have an advocate. The very person who paid the penalty for our sins is there to represent us. The picture we get is that of a courtroom where we have a, a defense attorney in a rock-solid case and a judge that has declared us to be not guilty before the trial even begins. And you have to ask, is there any point in bringing a charge at all? No, because they have already been dismissed against us. God himself has declared us to be righteous. Jesus Christ represents us before the throne of God. Who can bring a charge against us when Jesus Christ himself is acting as our representative before the throne of God? Christ himself died for us, was raised, sits at the right hand of God, and he intercedes on our behalf. He paid the penalty for our sins. He made the atonement for sins that was required to cover that penalty. And when he called and we responded to him in faith, his death was applied to our account. And now he sits ready to make sure that that payment is applied to each and every one of us, every day of our lives. That's our legal team, the legal team that we, have been, that we have working for us in heaven right now. Whenever you ponder the possibility of losing your salvation, come back to this passage. This is one of the greatest passages on the believer's security. Can the elect ever be lost? Can you lose your salvation? Absolutely not. No one can take that away from you. You know what the best part about this is, is that none of this is dependent upon us. We have been saved. We have put our faith and trust in Him, and now our security is totally in the hands of God, not in me. Nothing I can do, no matter how badly I fail, and I will fail plenty, right? I mean, even John says, don't sin, but when you do sin, because we're all going to sin, right? But nothing I can do will ever take me away from the one who loved me, who chose me and died for me. Whatever charge is brought against me, it's already been dealt with. Now Paul goes on to show that not only is there no charge that can be brought against us, but there isn't anything else that can separate us from the love that God has for me. Really, it's just another way of emphasizing the same thing, right? He's just continuing on with this same theme. It says in verse 35, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? The love of Christ is revealed in the sacrifice that he made for us. The love that he showed us by dying for us on the cross. This is the love that resulted in our salvation. We've established that no one can separate us from that love. There is no other person that can separate us from that, bringing a charge against us. But is there anything that can separate us? When things are going good, we know that God loves us, right? When things are going well, we have no problem with thinking, oh, God's on our side, everything's going good, God, I see the love of God each and every day. When do we sometimes begin to question the love of God? It's when the difficult things come, right? Maybe all those things that are going on in my life, maybe this is or maybe it's one really horrible thing in my life. Maybe they're all an indication that maybe maybe I'm not really in the love of God. Maybe God doesn't really love me. Maybe he doesn't really care about me. Paul lists out a number of things here that may cause a person to question whether or not God is still on our side. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. When there are trials, when we are destitute, when we've lost a job and we don't know where our next meal is coming from. When we're in danger, when we're in fear of being persecuted and our lives are on the line. I mean, you've got to admit, these are really bad things, right? I'd hazard a guess that most of us haven't experienced the majority of the things that Paul lists here. It might, might have been different for those in Rome at this point in time. But we haven't experienced a lot of these things, and we're glad that we haven't. But during times like these, that's when we might begin to question the love of God in our lives. Oh, God, I don't don't think I can make it through this. I I know that you said that you're with me, but, but the pressure is so much. I don't know how I'll ever survive this. Has God abandoned us? No. Not even during these times. None of the things that Paul lists here he's saying, can separate us from his love. In verse 36, he goes on to quote from Psalm 44. He says, Just as it is written, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And what's he, what does this verse mean? What, why does he put this here? He's showing us that all these things are to be expected in the life of those who belong to God. This is a quote from Psalm 44 talking about the nation of Israel being, being devoured by their enemies. What they went through because they were God's chosen nation, right? Other nations came in and they attacked and they did things to Israel that made it seem as if they were being d- devoured and slaughtered. And they were slaughtered at times. When these difficulties come, does that indicate that there is something wrong in our lives? indicate that something is amiss? No. On the contrary, it indicates that something is right in our lives. We saw this earlier in the chapter, back in verse 16 of Romans 8, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Suffering with Christ is a part of the package of belonging to him. Being reconciled to his side against the world, right? We were on the world's side before, and we became reconciled to God. And where does that put us? Now we're the enemies of the world. Jesus himself told the disciples in John 15, verse 20, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. On account of our association with Jesus Christ, which is the biggest threat to the world, right? We can expect opposition and tribulation from the world. That's one of the areas to which this applies. Remember, we don't fit here. We, you know, I'm reading news articles yesterday. It's becoming more and more apparent. We don't fit in the world. There are things going on today that just make no sense. But we don't belong in the world. To the world, we are nothing more than sheep to be slaughtered. These things are a further testimony to the love of God, to the fact that we do belong to him. We live in a hostile environment. We go through trials how often, right? We like to think once in a while, every day. Here, the quote is, all day long, it says. We should expect trials to come. Suffering to be a constant part of our lives. In fact, when there aren't trials, when there isn't any opposition from the ungodly around us, that's when I think we need to try to figure out why. Why? Why am I getting along with the world? Maybe I should take a look at what I am doing. The road to glory takes us through suffering, to become conformed to the image of a son. We saw that back up in the previous section in chapter 8. So these things will come upon us. But what does he go on to say about them in verse 37? He says, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. In all this adversity, We overwhelmingly conquer, he says. We've already won. We're the victors. To the world, in their eyes, they're persecuting us. They are driving us into the ground. But in reality, we've already won. He uses the word overwhelming, right? Overwhelmingly conquered. We don't just make it by the skin of our teeth. We don't squeak by at the last second, right? You, you watch any movies or TV shows, right? And the hero—what what always happens in in those shows? So the person that wins—they never like overwhelmingly win. It's never just somebody that goes through and and just wins every battle. No, they they get—they're on the ropes, right? They get knocked down. They're um, they're barely able to do it. And you think at some point, oh, they're not going to win. They're not going to do it. Oh, and then he gets up and. Knocks the guy out or whatever. He wins at the very end, right? Just by the skin of his teeth. That's a mental picture that we might have of the victorious conqueror, but that is not what this is. We overwhelmingly conquer. This is one punch and lights are out. Now, we can't get a big head about this. How is it that these things can't beat us that we can conquer so overwhelmingly? Overwhelmingly. It's because it's not about us, and it's not dependent upon us. never has been. We conquer through Him who loved us. The ability to conquer is a result of the work of Jesus Christ. What we've been talking about through this entire section. He is the one who has conquered. He is the one who gives us this victory. Nothing can change that. Nothing can even come close to changing that. It's as good as done. You realize the outcome has already been determined here. There's no question. There is no question. That's why we have hope in the glory that's to be revealed, because we know what's coming. God wins, period. He's already won, right? Just like in the movies that we talked about. We get this idea sometimes, the world promotes it, that there's a great battle, that there's a great struggle between God and the devil, right? You might even see movies about that sometimes where, oh, it's God and the devil, who's going to win? We don't know. They're going to, you know, the devil's going to come up with some scheme and he's going to thwart the plans of God. It doesn't work that way. Don't be fooled into thinking that it's even close to that. God wins. He's already won. In fact, there's not even really a contest. It would be like if, and I know this is kind of a silly example, but I'm going to use it anyway. It'd be like if two teams went out to play a football game, okay? Okay. And the officials, they come into the, to the middle and there's gonna be a coin, to- uh, coin toss, yeah. Sometimes they say coin toss. I don't know why I do that. There's gonna be a coin toss. And the referees tell both teams, okay, just so you know, this game is already in the books. The home team wins. It's already over. The league has already decided that this team wins. And whatever you do today doesn't matter. You guys have won. So here, let's flip the coin. And you guys can go out and play. You might say, well, what's the point, right? What's the point of playing? But anyway, the teams go out and they play because they're part of the league and they have to play this game. So the teams go out and play and a victor has already been decided. Now, when they play this game, does it matter what happens to them? Does it matter what the other team does to the team that has already been decided that they're a victor? No, the other teams... You might go out and play a superior game. The other team might do, make some great plays. They might do some things that, that are flashy and, and you know, really make an impression on scouts or whatever, whatever you want to say, right? But it doesn't matter. And it's that certainty of a victory that we're talking about here. What act of adversity can even come close to frustrating the plan of God in that type of situation? God wins. Nothing can thwart it. As Christians, even if the world puts us to death, the most disastrous thing that they can do to us physically, all that does is place us in the presence of the Lord, where we will be for all eternity. What can they do to me? What can anyone do to me? What can happen? Nothing can change the fact that I am eternally secure in Jesus Christ because of what he did for me on the cross. In the last two verses, Paul summarizes and brings the chapter to a close as Paul tells us the conclusion that he's reached in all of this. He says, For I am convinced that neither life nor death, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am convinced, he says. This is Paul's final conclusion here. This is what he knows to be true. He presents here another list of things. If someone were to try to find something that could possibly, even remotely possibly, separate us from the love of God, maybe it could come from this list. So Paul lists these things in pairs to show the extent here. Neither death nor life, not dying. We might consider this one, right? Dying won't do it. Dying won't separate me from the love of Christ. Where does that put me? That puts me in glory with him, right? But he also includes life, not anything while we're alive, not anything dead or not anything while we're alive. goes from one extreme to the other. That's pretty all-encompassing, isn't it? Death and life, it's hard to find something that's in between there. That seems to pretty much cover it all. Nothing dead, nothing alive can separate us from Christ. He goes on, nor angels nor principalities. Now we might think of dead or alive as the reference to the physical world, mankind or humanity. But here he broadens it out now to the spiritual realm. Okay. Let's broaden it out to the spiritual realm. Nothing in the spirit world. He mentions angels. Not that something that not that this is something that angels would do, but the point is that they couldn't even if they tried. Neither good angels nor fallen angels, nothing in the spiritual world. There is nothing even in the spiritual realm that could keep us from the glory that God has promised. Things present nor things to come. Nothing that exists now and nothing that will ever exist in the future. Think about how how all-encompassing that is. You start to get the idea, Paul is leaving us no wiggle room here. There isn't anything that exists now or that will exist. Well, Paul was writing a long time ago. All things have changed since then. Maybe Satan has found a way after 2,000 years. No, he includes that, not even things to come, nor powers. And this one can be used of miracles. There's some debate on this, but it could be used of miracles. Maybe he's talking about miracles, some type of miraculous event. could be used of spirits, possibly demonic powers in view here. And some would say that maybe his reference to angels and principalities before was to angels alone, and here he might be including the demonic realm. But either way, the point is the same. There's no power at all that can change our security, nor height, nor depth. This is the totality, heaven to hell, you could say, from from as high as you could possibly go to as far down as you could possibly go. We're running out of options here, aren't we? This is a pretty conclusive list. Nothing dead or alive, nothing in the spirit world, nothing that exists today or that will ever exist in the future, nothing in heaven or in hell. What else is there? Is there anything else? Well, before you answer that, just in case there is something that you could think of, he adds that last phrase, nor any other created thing. What things have been created? Aside from God himself, everything has been created. Everything. Just in case something was missed, in case you could possibly find a way to squeeze something into the rest of the list, this phrase seals the deal. In fact, he could have just said this, right? Nothing created could separate us from the love of God. Nothing, absolutely nothing in the entirety of creation can separate the believer from the love of God. He uses the phrase love of God here. He's used love of Christ before. It's the same thing. To be loved by the Father is to be loved by the Son. It's an inseparable relationship. It's the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Only in Christ Jesus can we experience God's love. That is the only way to truly experience the love that God offers to us, is to put your faith and trust in the gospel of His Son. The love of God showed to the world was thrown, was through His only begotten Son. And only those who accept that love experience the security that we're talking about here. This is the security of the believer. Those that have believed in the gospel. Look back at chapter 5 with me for just a minute. We're almost done. We talked about God's love there, really in the same context. Let's start in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character Hope. So here in these verses, we have a synopsis of what we're seeing in Romans chapter 8. Those justified, exulting in the hope of glory. And how we also exult in tribulations, the sufferings that sanctify and mature us. But once again, it's all leading to the hope of glory. Look at verse 5. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts Through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. God's love has been what? Poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Our seal, our pledge, our guarantee of that hope. God loved us and poured out His love into us through the Holy Spirit. And as we're seeing at the end of chapter 8, there's nothing that can separate us from that love. This is true for all who are in Christ Jesus. Right? He started out chapter, chapter 8 and verse 1. Therefore there is no now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's who he's talking about. There is absolute security for the children of God. If you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation, if you have come to the point where you recognize your sin, where you have come to him for repentance, You have trusted in His work on the cross where where He died for your sins, paid the penalty that you owed in His own body. If you have come to that point and truly believed in Him for your salvation, then this security applies to you. Do you ever feel like God abandoned you? Do you ever feel like there is suffering that's going on that will overwhelm you? Maybe sometimes it feels that way. But feelings deceive us. That's why it's important to be grounded in the Word of God and not just in our feelings. Because no matter how bad things get, no matter how overwhelmed we may be, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us right here that God will never abandon us, that no one can ever remove us from His love and bring a charge against us that will overrule His verdict of justified. You have been justified. Not because it feels that way, but because we recognize the truth of his word. We know this and can take comfort in it because of the truth of his word, his promise to us. God is working on my behalf day after day to make me more and more like his son. That is the gift that God has given us in his son. It's because of Jesus Christ coming to earth to provide this salvation to us. What a glorious gift, what a wonderful confidence that I can have as I go out into this world and I experience trials, I experience opposition, I even experience persecution, knowing that none of it has any negative effect on what God has in store for me in eternity. None of it can affect what God has already accomplished in my life as his child. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and Lord, we just give you praise and thank you again for this time that we have here together, Lord. We thank you for the book of Romans. We thank you for all that you have revealed to us here. We thank you, Lord, for your gift of salvation, and we we just thank you, Lord, for those of us that know you as, um, as our Savior. We just thank you and praise you, Lord, for all that you have given to us and done for us. We thank you, Lord, for the security that we have in you. We know, Lord, that as we live our lives here in this world, that we will be with you in glory and that nothing that happens to us here will ever change that. We give you praise for that, Lord. We pray that that would affect our lives here today. We pray that that would affect the confidence and the boldness that we have as we present your gospel, as we stand for the truth, as we as we honor you, Lord, with everything that we do each and every day. We just pray that we would live in light of these truths. And Lord, we pray now that as we leave here, as we go into the next hour, that that would be a time that would honor and bring glory to you. We pray for Josh as he brings us the word once again. We pray that you would give him wisdom, Lord, and that we would have an understanding into your word once again. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.